More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. Dr. Julie Panessi here, and I'm so incredibly delighted. I've been looking forward to this. Well, before Danny knows that knew that I was looking forward to this, um, I've been looking forward to having this chat for quite a few days now. And I think you will soon uh, see why that is. So let's just jump right in. Um, we have with us today Corporal Dan Bulford. You like Danny? Danny Bulford? Yes, I, I, I go by Danny. Until recently, you were a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So you had this very comprehensive, very community-based sort of position, and then you go to Ottawa, and it mu did, did it become much more specialized, much more yeah, narrowly 100%. focused? And, and, and then, so I've, I've read, I think, that your position there was tactical enforcement, mm -hmm. protective operations as an ERT sniper observer can you say a bit more about what that that entails and and why a position like that is important or essential and who you're mainly protecting you know that kind of thing predominantly it's protective operations mm -hmm. and so the majority of my time with uh, the Ottawa team if I was not training it was protecting the prime minister or other uh internationally protected persons so right. visiting heads of state we we are often used to uh, bolster or supplement the protection of, of vips for people who haven't heard anything about your story mm -hmm. uh why do you say you're off, you know why are you off work now and you weren't a week ago or two weeks ago i i've been off work since right around thanksgiving um, shortly after the announcement was made about the, the federal mandate. Mm. Vaccine mandate. Yeah, that's right. Been in contact with my, one of my supervisors, who's a, a close, dear personal friend of mine. And I knew that there was going to be a fallout from speaking out publicly. I knew that. And I was willing to accept those consequences. And I wanted to be open and honest with him. And, and he was, he was the same with me and we, we have a great relationship that way. And we arranged for myself to come in the Tuesday morning and I had to uh, turn in my building pass because uh, they had removed my, they had, sorry, they had restricted my access to the, to the property where our office is. And then I had to turn in like my, my building pass, my keys, my work phone. And then I also, I, I took it upon myself at that time to gather all of my personal belongings as well. And uh, there wasn't very many of my teammates in the office that day um, because they're spread out all over the place doing different things. So I, I, said, my, I said my goodbyes to the people that were there. Um, so it was a, it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster day, but I knew that it was coming. I knew that that would, I knew that was going to be the result of what I had done speaking out with previous interviews. So it wasn't unexpected. Do you feel that this is a loss or do you feel that it's a loss worth 
um, having. The hardest part, sincerely, is to leave my teammates. Mm -hmm. They were like family. You know what I mean? Um, and most most of them are very supportive of my decision. But there are there are some people I felt very close to that are upset with me right now. And I, that's, that's hard. I, I, but I know that, uh, I knew that there was going to be sacrifices with what I'm doing. I knew that. So you're no longer employed by the RCMP. Uh, I am technically. You are. You are. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But you're not, you're not allowed to perform the duties you were performing. Yes, that's correct. Okay. So right now I'm on, uh, you'd call it what we would call off-duty sick or stress leave. Right. Right. Um, I've been very honest and open with my physician about why that is with, with a, a psychologist that I've been speaking with. And so by policy, anything beyond a 40 hour absence, you have to have signed off by a physician. So I have that signed off by my physician. Um, the, my understanding is that the, the standard for that initial period is about 30 days. And so that will expire in November. And then I have to decide what I'm doing from there. Um, but the, so if you don't return to your position, it mm -hmm. will be because of your questioning of and concerns with the vaccine mandate, I take it. Yes, yes. That's um, the reason that you're in this position right now. Like why? why I'm off work and why I yeah how do, you know I think we're I think one thing that's um I guess what I'm trying to get at is I think a lot of people will say what's the big deal I've heard this mm -hmm. said, right what's the big deal uh you know we've had vaccines in the past and some have been required for certain kinds of employment or schools what's the big deal about this why is that you know what I mean why is this mm -hmm. causing so much strife. I mean, I, I've lived this myself. People have said this to me, you know, why didn't you just get the, get the jab and keep people safe and keep working? And, uh, and I think they think it's weird that a, an, an ethics professor would question that, would refuse that, would be willing to give up a job for that. Um, you know, what is your answer to those, those kinds of challenges or those kinds of questions from people? When we were offered it early in the spring, mm -hmm. I likely would have done it because I hadn't done a whole lot of research or I hadn't really investigated the issue myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I even early on, like early 2020, I remember having conversations with people, you know, thinking that a vaccine or some type of treatment would have to be developed in order to get us through this. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what, uh, how long uh, vaccine development normally occurred at that point. Right. And, but by uh, spring of 2021, I'd already heard that there was new technology being used to try and um, develop something 
faster. And that, that wouldn't normally pique my interest, but it was actually um, my wife who had done a little bit more looking into it and was just paying attention closer to that than I was leading up to spring of 2021. And so when the, when the, the offer came to us, I was surprised that it was offered to us. I didn't think that we would get offered it until much later. Mm-hmm. So I just asked if it was mandatory and the answer was no. So you started that, to have some, you've done a, done a little bit of research and you had a few concerns. So you wanted to make sure, is this something I'm going to have to do before? Right? Yes. So, well, I mean, so the idea that there was a brand new technology that I knew nothing about, I just paused said, okay, well, if this is not mandatory right now, and it's not going to impact what I'm available, what I'm able to do right now, like we were still continuing status quo, mm-hmm. uh, what, how we had been working throughout the entire period. I was just going to take some time to look at, look at the issue mm-hmm. for my, to make my own informed decision. Mm-hmm. So, and just to elaborate a bit on your point about what's the big deal, mm-hmm. there's other vaccines. You know, I never, I never made an issue about any previous vaccines that I was required to take for my job, even, even vaccines for things that people in Canada would never even see um, because I've, I've traveled internationally for my work. Right. And I never questioned those before but I also didn't feel like I had much reason to because these, they had been around for a long time. And, uh, you know, the, the example that I've used before is yellow fever, you know, in some countries you need to have that before they will even permit you into the country. And you even get like a special uh, card for your immunization booklet, like a vaccine pass to enter certain countries because it's such a concern there. Um, but when I went to get that, you know, I was under the impression that it was one shot, good for 10 years. Then when I actually went to the clinic, they said, actually, it's, it's even improved now. So it's one shot and you're good for life. So I was like, oh, that's great. <laughs> so I took it, no questions asked, and I deployed on the international trip. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have a history of being against vaccination Mm -hmm. but throughout this last year or since spring of 2021 when I really started to try and investigate both sides of the argument you know the uh I always refer to it as the official narrative like what you're seeing from the government and the media and public health officials and the counter narrative. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to be objective. I wanted to give a fair shake to um, both sides of the argument. And I noticed some recurring themes that were concerning to me. And I think 
so I'll start with the official narrative first. I, I really, I, I looked hard at all of the official public health statements or public health agencies. And I tried to find supporting scientific literature behind what they were saying. And so, and consistently, and even to date, my consistent themes that I have found on the official narrative, uh, I, I refer to them as like my three consistent themes. There is the, there is general blanket statements without providing detailed evidence and information to support it. And I've looked hard. I really have. And the majority of what I found, <laughs> and I'm sure I'm not the only one. And the majority of what I found, it's, it's more like uh, opinion articles is, is how it appears to me. Uh-huh. As if, as if it is settled, as if it's a, as if the science is completely settled, and if you question it, you're an idiot. Mm-hmm. So I think I, those words have been used exactly. Oh, I'm, I am exactly. sure they have. I'm sure they have, and <laughs> yeah. and even more volatile language has been used. So there's the the vague general statements, like the safe and effective benefits outweigh the risk. It's the best tool to protect yourself and others. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, and then the second theme that I've noticed is the, the verbal condescending attacks towards anyone who attack, who counters the narrative. Mm -hmm. And that to me is like the hallmark of a bully. I've experienced that in my youth and I've experienced that throughout my entire Northern service and even within, ah, not so, not in my unit, but in within other aspects of the RCMP, like how dare you question my authority, that type you, of behavior. Now you're seeing it from our whole government system. Absolutely. Yep. And and our mainstream media mm-hmm. and even our, our social media, bigger social media plat, uh, platforms to a degree with their censorship. So the vague general statements without providing transparent evidence to back up their claims the uh, verbal condescending attacks and suppression and censorship of you know thousands of medical and scientific experts directly related to these fields and then the weirdest one of all is the weird inappropriate analogies that i keep hearing comparing these vaccine products to like helmets seat belts body armor you know the seat belt and the body armor one I've heard repeatedly in the, in the policing world mm-hmm. and it's all over Facebook and yeah, exactly. And, um, and I, 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 those do not belong in the same conversation in my mind, you know, Why like, do you think that that's a bad analogy. So I know if people will say, well, we, we have to do lots of things to protect other people. You know, we wear, mm-hmm. we're safe, we wear seatbelts just so why aren't we getting this vaccine? And there are memes and cartoons and all kinds of things surrounding yeah. that message. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that's another thing I've noticed with those inappropriate analogies, like, is like the cartoonish type graphics, you know, explaining how these things work and how they're completely safe. And, yeah. I feel like that's a, an insult to the population's intelligence. It's like, we have to dumb it down for the masses because don't you worry, all of you uneducated majority, we, the authorities, will do what's best for you. And you just have to trust that that's the case. That's kind of the feeling I get from it. But I mean, on the analogy front, you know, 
I, helmets, seat belts, body armor have been around for decades. I feel confident that I understand the limitations and the advantages of all of those things. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I wear them on the outside of my body. It is exterior protection. Mm -hmm. And I can take it off when I want to. Mm -hmm. the, vac the vaccine, once it's in my body, I don't know what it's going to do. And there's no and reversing I, it quite possibly. Yeah, I, I can't take it out. Mm -hmm. you know? um, and there's, so if, then if I, I, if I pivot over, sorry, one more thing I'll just mention on like uh, theme number one, the generic vague statements without the, the detailed information. Mm -hmm. I have searched hard and maybe I just haven't done a, a quality enough job of finding what I'm looking for, but. <laughs> well, Danny, but the, if you're not good at it, having specialized training in, in investigative work, then the rest of us are certainly not going to have much luck. Well, <laughs> you know, you know, uh, the, the most detailed information I've been able to find has been from the pharmaceutical companies that have developed these products. And, and that's just the, the fact sheets because I can't access their clinical trials. I, 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 I believe that you have to be a physician or a researcher and that you may even have to pay to access that information. Mm -hmm. I don't know that for sure, but that's, that's what had, that is what was told to me by someone even in the, the medical community. Even the vaccine fact sheets, those risks have not made it onto the consent forms. That's correct. Although... Even even those fact sheets, I believe the uh, last update I saw to them was September 27th, maybe. And even they are acknowledging, like for the mRNA vaccines, uh, acknowledging that there is an observable association of a risk of uh, myocarditis, pericarditis. Mm -hmm. And I think for you know various age groups, um, between Pfizer and Moderna, but both of those companies have acknowledged that on their fact sheets. And then the viral vector, like Johnson and Johnson, AstraZeneca have acknowledged the thrombosis related blood clotting risks. Now, we did hear a little bit about AstraZeneca having that concern early on, even in mainstream media. But then it was definitely uh, made to appear as like, oh, no, 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 no. It's totally fine. It's just, it's, it's no more than what we would expect from the, the, the normal occurrences of the population. So that narrative changed for sure. Um, it just strikes me as you're chatting, Danny, that I, I just feel like I'm watching the kind of process you would go through when investigating any sort of unknowns in your job. You know, it's, um, I mean, we... We don't have to go, you know, even too much farther down down the road to sort of figure out, uh, you know, what your reasoning was. But we can see that, like, it's very mm -hmm. clear that you, you know, there's this this new mandate that that's on the horizon. Your immediate thought is not, well, I'll obviously just do that because I'm being ordered to do it. You're thinking, okay, well, what is this? Where does it come from? How is this similar to or different from other instructions in the past? what do I do? What do I do best? Well, I, I look for evidence. I look for data. I research. And it seems to me you've applied those skills that you were trained 
to do over so many decades even, right? And you're applying them to this context. And, and those left you with a lot of a lot of very good questions and reasonable doubts, you know? Reasonable doubt is a, is a perfect reference in my, like that's an appropriate analogy in my mind. So when I pivot to the counter narrative, early on, 2021, I started paying attention. Like I, I did try and approach it from, with a systematic mindset. So when I was looking at the counter narrative, I, I think one of the earliest videos that I saw that raised my concerns about what's going on here was a scientist by the name of Garrett Vandenbosch. Mm -hmm. And he was explaining why you do not do this. You do not mass vaccinate in the middle of a pandemic. And I didn't know much about these vaccines at the time, but he was spe specifically concerned about driving resistant variants mm -hmm. and creating immune escape. And my interpretation of what he was saying, I mean, it was very technical, but my layman interpretation was like, if we're not careful, we could make this problem much worse. Mm -hmm. And we could potentially jeopardize the innate immune system of people that have received these products. Mm -hmm. And that to me was like, whoa, I need, to, I need to pay attention to what people like him are saying, right? And I, I know there's, mm -hmm. you know, th there is, rarely is there a, a complete consensus in the scientific community, right? Like that's why, that's what science is about, right? It's yeah. about testing hypothesis and mm -hmm. finding new information and updating our knowledge. Mm -hmm. So, but that, that was one of the first uh, pieces of information that really stuck out in my mind is like, okay, I need to look at this further because this is serious. have said the same thing that you, yes. uh, to quote a, a very, uh, a full professor of physiology I've, I've been speaking with at a top Canadian university, you can't vaccinate your way out of a respiratory out of a pandemic. pandemic. It's not yes. possible uh, with the technology we currently have. Mm -hmm. um, and so that view, I think you're right that that view, you know, that you heard early on and it's been um, repeated by many others who are very qualified to make those kinds of uh, pronouncements. Uh, and, and actually, I just saw an article, a couple of articles yesterday about how one was in the star, but about how emergency rooms are seeing an incredible increase in very, very sick patients, not with COVID, but with other things. So that's, mm. you know, without delving very deeply, that would be consistent with, um, you know, what, what you're, what you're saying, you know, um, one of the things that's very interesting to me, you know, you talked earlier about bullying and a kind of bullying from our government. And, um, you know, if we just kind of pull back and think a little bit philosophically or politically for a minute, what does that make you think in terms of where we're at in our democracy? Um, you know, you're a citizen. I, I agree with you. I feel an incredible amount of coercion and pressure. I've gotten the calls from Health Canada. You know, when are you booking Europe? I mean, this is this is not a time to feel free and autonomous and supported in our own our own critical thinking, right? What do you think about where we've gotten in terms of this institutionalized bullying from our governments? And 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 is what does that say about you know where we're at in terms of our democracy? Is this something we should feel good about, or is this something we should be worried about? I'm 
I am very concerned about what the future of our country looks like. I, I, I started paying attention to changes that were happening a number of years ago, starting with uh, um, an infringement on freedom of speech and even legislation for compelled speech. You know, there's another very high profile professor in Canada that lost his job for speaking out against that legislation. Or I, I can't say he lost his job. I don't know the specifics about that, but he, he has pressures ventured on to a much different uh, career path. Um, this is not a wholly new problem. No, no. And, um, you know, this whole, it seems to me that we are increasingly moving towards a more authoritarian style of governance. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, bordering on a move towards like a, a socialist, communist style of government or governance. Um, but kind of with the sleight of hand, right? Um, a little bit more of a, a stealthy version of a, a creep, an incremental move towards that style of governance. And I, I heard something incredibly interesting last night from uh, the former premier of Newfoundland, uh, Brian Peckford. Peckford. I, I think that's his first name. Um, it was the first time I'd ever really, I, I had heard his name and I knew that he was on the scene uh, speaking out about the Charter of Rights because he was directly involved in, in the creation of the Constitution Act. And so I listened to him speak last night and he was laying out how since the days of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, there has been a major power shift between uh, members of parliament and what they were able, the level of influence that they were that they were capable of as individual members. And with every prime minister since, the power balance has shifted heavily to the Privy Council in the prime minister's office. And I thought that was very interesting because I mean, obviously that is, appears to be certainly what we're seeing right now. And, you know, the, I think right now this overreach into bodily autonomy is probably the most egregious over, overreach that I am aware of into, right. into the rights of the individual. When, when you and I chatted the other day, I was so curious to ask you, I'm going to re-ask it now because I think it's interesting for people to hear. So, you know, if what you're saying is right, that we are seeing more of sort of a move or a slide toward a heavier hand of government, a less democratic system, a more authoritarian system. And if our current, uh, current federal government, I'll say, because that's who you were charged with, working with and protecting our current federal government is is, is particularly um, you know to put it in in sort of crude terms gung-ho about that that direction or that movement mm -hmm. you know when you are charged with protecting key figures within that government including our prime minister you know what was it like for you um, sort of psychologically being it, it was your job to protect this person and mm -hmm. and made figures in, the, in this government who are taking our country in a direction that that really worried you you know what's that like i mean i can appreciate that someone in your position there's a certain amount of professionalism and distancing from particular personalities but i wonder about the extent to which that's possible when so much is at stake 
it had its difficult moments for sure. Um, but we, we do seek to be professional in our craft and to do our job well. I can personally speak for myself that it did, it did, it did impact my, my, the, how much satisfaction I had in my work and my morale to show up to work with a positive attitude like that, that required effort. I really, and it, and it's easy. It's, I feel like that's harder to, it's harder to remain positive than to get sucked into the negative. And, but so that requires more independent work, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. it does. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And that, that definitely required concentrated effort to remain positive and try and constantly come up with uh, strategies as to, okay, how can I do my job better so that it's more interesting and I'm more engaged? Because there's many times with the, the protective policing world where I was, I just, I was ready to walk away and, and go do something completely different, different in the RCMP, even though I had I had landed myself this amazing job with this amazing team and with all of the, all of the perks that went with that, you know, the, the, you know, the, the nice, the nice steady income, travel. The, the, the travel, camaraderie, um, autonomy, all these yes, things. Like that, 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 that yeah, it sounds fantastic. <laughs> it, 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 it's, uh, it's probably the best job in the RCMP. I would, suspect and but I there was just there was always something missing right it just it just didn't speak to me it wasn't it wasn't what I truly wanted to do for the rest of my career um so you know full disclosure even before this announcement was made I was already starting to build my CV to move into something different in the RCMP maybe go back towards like the investigative world because I just felt like I it was no longer for me because you wouldn't want to be tasked with protecting anyone or because you wouldn't want to continue to have to work to protect our current members of government is that a fair question you don't have to answer no no that that's totally fair (laughs) um I think the the protective policing had lost its luster as a whole for me, but I, uh, I'll admit that I think it made a difference about who was in office. Yeah. I think it did. Um, and I mean, and you know, not that I don't care about his safety. It's just, I knew that my heart wasn't really in it anymore. And I was lying to myself if I, if I stayed in that, in that role for, I was lying to myself and just trying to convince myself that trying to rationalize remaining there, as opposed to like being honest with myself and like, okay, this, this is not what is engaging you and filling you with purpose and meaning anymore. You need to find something else. So it's hard for me to say for sure yeah. You're, it's to, what, to what degree him being in his position influenced that decision, but I definitely think it was a factor. 
well as a you know, non-law enforcement private citizen, it's very hard for me to feel like I'm part of any nation right now, that I'm a Canadian, that I'm a Canadian citizen. I feel like myself, I'm without government, without leadership, because it is impossible. I, I have no trust in our leadership. I have no confidence in our leadership. Um, and I certainly have, you know, no trust in their, um, you know, motives or, um, you know, their, their, their advice about what's best for, for my own healthcare. And then that's just speaking mm -hmm. personally as, as a lay person. And, and I think that matters. And, you know, either I am, you know, incredibly cynical and distrusting by nature, uh, but I'm not the only one, you know, and I think mm -hmm. that we need to give a good hard look at uh, that as a litmus test for how our democracy is going. It's sort of one thing to say, you know, I, um, you know, maybe I, maybe the person I voted for didn't, didn't end up in, in, in office, but I, but I support the integrity of the system and I, I'm on board with it. I think we've lost the integrity of our system. You know, I agree. I think we have, we have purely a top down flow of information. We have, in my view, no representative government and no indication on the part of our MPs or MPPs with very few exceptions. No mm -hmm. indication that they're even remotely interested in our questions and our expectations and our concerns. And, you know, I, I do apologize if some of those people are listening and they feel that that's harsh, but um, that's that's the conclusion I'm drawing based on the evidence I'm seeing. No, I, I, I fully agree with that. And, mm -hmm. you know, even uh, I was so disappointed in uh, Mr. O'Toole previous i you know i thought he had a good chance of maybe changing course and then kind of at the 11th hour when he started talking about we're gonna ensure we get to 90 percent and we're gonna speed up the authorization for children he lost you there huh? he, well <laughs> i still voted for him even though i i felt I didn't feel good about it, but I thought that he, I was trying to be strategic and thinking that that would be our best chance. Yeah. Um, but I, I, let's, let's I, I, I knew that that was going to divide the yeah. vote. And I don't know to exactly what degree, but I think that definitely pushed people to the People's Party. Mm -hmm. and may have cost the conservatives a number of ridings mm -hmm. and um, sorry just, go ahead well I was just going to say you know on the topic of um, you know our sort of uh, public health messaging but also what was what was happening during the campaigns and the messaging uh, targeted towards citizens surrounding the pandemic happening during the campaigns and so I wanted to talk with you about fear for a little bit and mm -hmm. um, we certainly have seen in my view just a heavy fear-based messaging for 18 20 months it, it's if nothing else it, it's just emotionally and, and morally exhausting i think mm -hmm. it strikes me you know how different i mean if we compare if we think about the the covid situation as a crisis on par in magnitude with something like the wars of the past, even though it's it's not a it's not a, a war, a land war, but you know, uh, but in terms of crisis, where where citizens mm -hmm. have, have a kind of stress, and you think about 
you know, 1940s Britain and the messaging then so famous, so well known, keep calm and carry on. You mm -hmm. know, yes, there are things to be feared. Yes, we may not win this. Yes, we're probably going to lose a lot of people we care about desperately, our, our children we've sent off to war. Um, but the only thing we can do to respond to this is to be calm and unite and, and have faith that we can get through this. And now it seems to me that we're seeing the opposite messaging. And I was curious to ask you because you 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 deal in fear all the time your, your position wouldn't exist if you know you're if people weren't afraid for their lives for their safety um and so i mean in some sense you must have learned how to manage fear or how to figure out what's an appropriate level of fear for you know what's actually fearful and when we're being um whipped up into sort of a, a, a frenzy uh, when it's not necessarily necessary um and i think one thing we know is you know people are they're very hard to control when they're calm and confident and self-assured and life is going well and they're clear-headed and they're thinking critically and but the people are very easy to control when they're in a state of fear and when they're exhausted and bombarded and overwhelmed right so what would you have to say to people about about the current state of fear i mean is it is it legitimate have we overreacted how do we cope how do we sort of get a clear calm head in the midst of all of this fear language and fear language and fear messaging there ha we have been living in under a constant fear state some more than others and some should be more fearful than others you know there are definitely people who are at much higher risk of severe illness and death from COVID-19 and we've known that since very early on who who are who is most at risk and i don't think that's going to change i think those are the people who will remain to be at highest risk and i i i don't want to make them even more fearful and that's kind of why for a long time i was keeping my opinions to myself as i didn't want to perpetuate that fear, a deeper fear in people. Um, but I don't think that you can count on the current vaccine products to protect you. It may offer you some protection. I'm not going to deny that, especially if you're within the, those first few months immediately following. But I think a lot of people may have got it, felt bulletproof and think that they can just go back to normal life again. And increasingly, that does not appear to be the case. There aren't many things in life that make you invincible. It would, it's a bit odd to me that we are thinking this new thing that we know very little about would afford us that. Because I think the, the feeling of elation that people feel after getting vaccinated is, as you say, a response to this feeling, I'm invincible, I'm bulletproof, I'm, I'm purified now, I have nothing to worry about. And, and there's quite a concern there about a false sense of confidence and what will happen if that confidence is, is eroded in some way. Well, I guess part of my answer or part of my suggestion to people would be that there are things that you can do to make yourself more resilient 
And that has been completely missing from the official narrative side. So pivoting back to the counter narrative side as to why I've decided to take the path I've chosen is because there are you know, thousands of qualified professionals in the scientific community and the critical care medicine community, medical community that are advocating for protocols that can treat this disease and even help bolster your immune system mm -hmm. along with a proper diet, eating real food, getting outside because it's, uh, you know, I can't say specifically the, 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 yes, vitamin D getting out in the sunshine and, and being feeling outdoors. good in the psychosomatic effects on, on our, on our bodily state, right. From our mental, That's right. Health, you know, and right? um, all of those things, you know, there is, there's legitimate scientific literature out there that shows that, you know, being outside active, eating Happy. real food. Yeah you know, supplementing with different uh, nutraceuticals mm -hmm. make you much more resilient immune system wise. There's many things that you can do to bolster your immune system. This you don't so have important. to only rely on an injection. That's right. right? It's like, so the, important to realize that all these things you're talking about, this is information, information mm -hmm. that we need to have information that's important to have. And one of the things we know from, you know, psychological literature on fear is that the more information you have of the right kinds, if you've done your due diligence and the research, it gives you a kind of confidence and confidence is that antidote to fear, right? And I think, my, you know, my suspicion is that one of the reasons why we're so hamstrung in this state of fear is that we don't have any of this. We don't have, we don't know what else a lot of people have said, right? Well, what's the alternative if I'm not getting the vaccine? Because they genuinely don't know about all the things that you've just mentioned, you know, um, all the ways to boost natural immunity and the stratified risk, you know, that, that uh, COVID poses a much more significant risk to people in certain age groups with certain mm -hmm pre-existing conditions. And if we mm -hmm. had a fuller sense of that information, I think our fear would kind of stabilize or get in check a little bit, don't you think? Absolutely. But the the suppression and the censorship of the like complete suppression and censorship and attacks on anyone offering a, a counter narrative has made it almost it's difficult to find that it's not readily available. The information, they're not handing it out and saying, okay, these are the two sides of this argument. You decide which path you want to take. We rec, you know, um, you look at the evidence and you make your own informed decision. They've completely removed that as an option. And they're only offering this one narrow solution, which appears to be failing everywhere that it has been adopted. Yeah. Yes. You know, I mean, the proof and is in the pudding, they say, and the pudding isn't looking very good. <laughs> no, no, I mean, people are probably getting tired of hearing it. But if you look at Israel, the UK, Singapore, places that have some of the highest or, or earliest vaccination rollouts, they are still getting hit with the wave after wave after wave. Um, and the United States and us, we're, we're, we're all experiencing this thing. And are these, these similar progressions. And you know, I, I heard recently 
someone say, well, there was less death in the fourth wave. And I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I haven't specifically uh, tried to verify that. But it, but, well, perhaps because a lot of the people that were vulnerable have already died. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that, you know that, that's possible. But mm-hmm. that debate, that exchange of information from the two, the two sides of the narrative has not been allowed to occur. So how right. can we ever know? Like it's the mainstream media is pumping propaganda as opposed to reporting news. Yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah. the ivermectin situation is such a good example of that. The you know mainstream oh. media continues to call it horse paste. And my goodness, mm-hmm. it's uh, sorry guys, you know, you, you gotta look at this. This is there, there's a there's a human equivalent to begin with outside, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that, that it's has been proven to be safe and effective in humans. It's been supported by the National Institutes of Health and the World Health Organization. I, I can't tell you how tired I am of saying that, but mm-hmm. it's important to say it because it's true and there's evidence for it and it's gonna matter to people's lives, you know. Pavoxamine has really shown a lot of success mm-hmm. lately, uh, and a number of others. Um, Danny, I have two questions for you to, uh, to end, and I know I've kept you for, for quite a while already, but the first one is, uh, and I'm going to embarrass you by saying this, I'm pretty sure, but I'm curious about the answer. So you, you've been called a hero by many people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, um, do you, what, what do you think about when you hear that? I don't feel like a hero. I, a real, you know, some of the real heroes are the people that had the courage to speak up early on. I'm just following their lead. And I wish, I wish I had spoken up sooner. I, I was guilty of that compliance and that silence for a long time. And I'm not going to pretend like I'm some kind of hero when I only became really vocal when it started to directly impact uh, the freedom of choice. You know, I, I, I was afraid to offend people. I was afraid how I would be perceived by people that I had relationships with if I, if I expressed my opinion openly or my beliefs, my beliefs openly. Um, we can all relate so, to that we know the um, the pains of that yeah. i i remain silent while this was a matter of choice even though i knew what they were doing wasn't supported by all of the scientific and medical professionals that i had started paying attention to who were raising legitimate concerns about safety efficacy and the complete suppression of early treatment like that to me is the even larger crime here is that they have knowingly disregarded high quality information from highly qualified experts that could have saved potentially millions of lives globally that's and a lot so, there isn't it that's a heavy weight when we think about it that way yeah so I, I don't, I have received an overwhelming amount of support, um, phone calls, emails, messages, people reaching out and saying, thank you for what you're doing. I just wish I had done it sooner. So it makes me feel good that I'm doing it now. It does. Um, being brave feels good. 
I know like my stress and my anxiety about what I was going to do was at its highest when I was spinning every possible what if scenario about what to do. There was many times where I almost folded, where I was looking around at colleagues or I was looking around at community members, like before I got outlawed from the hockey rink, looking at everyone thinking like, am I wrong about this? Am I being paranoid? Almost feeling like, am I going insane? And that's a harsh word, I know, but those were the thoughts that were happening in my head. I'm like, these people all seem okay. But every time I, I tried to rationalize doing it to make this problem go away for me, I thought about the Canadian COVID Care Alliance and the FLCCC and the, all, of the, all of the courageous experts who've been willing to put their entire professional reputation at stake to say that something is wrong here. And we need to, we can't be silent about it. And I know that if I would have, if I would have done that, that would have, that would have ruined me psychologically. That would have impacted how I was as a father and a husband and a friend. I would have just become an angry, toxic human being to be around. So I chose a different path. And I'm glad I did. So I appreciate all the support. But there's a lot of people out there that were heroic earlier than I was. And people like yourself, I saw your video. I think I might have mentioned this to you. But I saw your video on the day that I was on the roof of the Museum of History at the leaders debate. And I think that was probably what may have prompted me that was a contributing factor to why I decided to do what I'm doing. So I just hope that it's not too late and that we can, we can give enough people out there that are feeling alone and isolated and dehumanized. We can give them hope that they're not alone. And to people out there that are attacking others for choosing the path that I've chosen. You're, you're six to eight months behind your information. If you still believe that you have to, that we're all selfish for not taking this vaccine because we don't care about other people, then you haven't been, you haven't even kept up to date with what the public health officials are saying. You know, it's been acknowledged by the Israeli Minister of Health, the UK Minister of Health, even the CD, director of the CDC, even Dr. Fauci, and even the CEO of Moderna. I saw all of them in one video montage released by uh, Dr. Malone that they have all conceded, I think as early as July, August, that these do not prevent transmission of this virus, especially with the Delta variant, which the last time I checked was about 90% of new cases in Ontario. And we're, I think we're, we're going to see our, 
our hospitalizations and deaths will increasingly occur in people that are fully vaccinated, like percentage-wise. Annie, thank you so much for that. I know I, I can see how hard this is and uh, the, the moral path is not an easy one for anybody. If it feels easy, we're probably doing it wrong. You know, it's this is hard for sure. Um, it's not, I mean, I, I know what it's like to have the worst things said about you in public, about your intelligence, about your, your, your virtue and, um, but you know, and I'm gonna say something very controversial here, but it matters. And I think it's motivating both of us. If we see these vaccines rolled out in five to 11 year olds, which I'm sure we will, there are children who are going to bed tonight who won't see their next, their next birthdays. I know I and have, I don't think uh, there's anything we can do about that, but I'm certainly not going to spend any day <laughs> not trying. No, I, uh, I have people in my life that I care greatly about that I know that I fear that they will do it. And I, they know my position and I've, I've openly said, I will never put that in my children. I mean, everyone has to do what they think is right, yeah. but. Uh, but as you've said, I'll, 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 we got to open up the conversation so people know what the options are, so they know what the information, what the evidence, what the discussions are that are happening. Uh, yeah. and, and then informed choice looks a lot different than it's looked over the last eight months. You know, if, if any of those people are listening right now, like listen to Byron Bridal. Listen to Peter McCullough. You know, these people, they're some of the most recognized experts in their field, in the, like in the history of the world. They're saying like, there's no reason for this. You know, children are extremely resilient to this and they are at far more risk of a severe adverse reaction than they are from even becoming symptomatic. And they're not super spreaders. Like, like Teresa Tam said recently, like, yes, there's gonna be outbreaks, you know, for in the five to 11 year old population, you know, kind of implying that that's why we need to do this for all of that age group as well. Like, but then you hear Dr. Eric Payne, who's a pediatric neurologist saying, this is not like influenza. Kids do not super spread this like they do influenza. They are far more likely to get it from home. And if an, and as if they're a healthy child, there's almost zero, like statistically zero risk of them even becoming, of them becoming seriously ill. And you know the the natural immunity. There's over ninety studies now available to show that natural immunity is longer lasting and more robust. We can't keep we can't buying keep into this narrative buying. that I... the human body is incapable. And yes, and, the, and the, the, the compliance and the silence that I've even been guilty of for the vast majority of this time period is what is allowing this to occur. We can't allow this to occur. It is, it's nonsensical to sacrifice our young people when it's not completely unnecessary.
I hope that so many people are listening right now as you're saying this. I hope, you know, I hope that I hope that people just start asking questions. Feel free to ask questions. Feel free to start talking about these things. Feel free to expect things of our government and not just feel obligated to them. And I just can't, I just can't thank you enough for talking with me today. I'll, I know we, we have other things we have to get on to, but I'll, I'll let you have the last word and um, to wrap us up today. I've ended off every interview <laughs> referring to a line in the sand. People might get tired of hearing me say it, but for people <laughs> who haven't heard me say it before, um, in my world, that's what we, we use the proverbial line in the sand as to what we're not going to let the suspect do before um, we are forced to take action. You know, we, we want the situation to resolve peacefully, but sometimes that doesn't happen. And we try to have that clearly communicated to everyone so that everyone knows if they, if the suspect does this, we are prepared to act. So I want everyone to visualize in their mind, what are you not willing to let them do? What are you not willing to let the government infringe upon in your private life? I'm doing what I'm doing because I feel they have crossed my line and they likely crossed it some time ago. I just finally have the courage to, to, to speak out against it. I think that line is going to be approached or, or sorry, that line is going to be crossed even further before it's pulled back. My hope is that there's enough people out there that are unwilling to take further injections, boosters, and who are unwilling to unnecessarily do this with, to their children, that that will make the government hesitate on pushing further. But I just want people to think about that. Visualize in your mind what's too far and be that will help you recognize it that it's that that they're approaching that line before it's too late you know in my career i've had a a, a, a real progression of how calm i have been able to become in a high-risk situation and that is all about preparation it's all about preparation and training both physical and mental and visualization so some of my more recent interactions that were high risk in nature the the, the nerves that were there early on in my career were completely absent right. and i felt so much more clarity and confidence in my in my actions and what the outcome would be so prepare yourself think about what that line is and think about what you will do if that line is crossed 
where is your line in the sand? And that might where's be, your line in the sand? Yeah. Might be different for different people. And as you say, it might be in the past for many of us, but we don't fix that by not drawing it now. That's right. And again, there are people that who are at higher risk. And if you feel that the right decision for you is to take this for your own protection or even the own, your own reduction in anxiety, I'll never criticize you for that. And I'll support that decision 100%. All I'm asking is to appeal to your humanity to understand why people like myself have chosen the path we've chosen. It's not out of selfishness. Or unreflectiveness. No, I have, this has consumed my life, this decision. I want this to end just as bad as everybody else does. But I know that would destroy me if I did this just based on what I know, just because the government told me I had to. And that wouldn't be the end of it, conceding in that way. I think we're starting to realize that, right? Yeah. That wouldn't be a, a panacea. It wouldn't fix what's troubling us now. No, I think we're already at such a high rate across the country mm-hmm. that most people would have expected that we would have been allowed to go back to normal by now. And we haven't. It's, it's, it's the farthest thing from since the beginning of all this. Well, Danny, thank you. I just, I, to say thank you just glosses over, you know, what I really feel right now. And I just really appreciate not just you sitting down with me today and talking to Canadians and whoever else will, will, will listen to this, but, but for, for what you're doing and you're just, you're, you're doing in my mind, what a good democratic citizen should be doing, you know, respectfully, uh, trying to encourage other people to think and and let's I mean our, our health Canada likes to say we're in this together well we are but that doesn't mean blindly going with the flow and following orders right it means thinking about uh, fellow citizens and what we owe to them and what what we owe to our democracy that we've built so we've worked so hard to build and let's not let it slip away now and let's keep opening up discussions like this and let's talk again sometime and maybe we'll have some good news to report but if we don't let's keep at it thank you for your time today and uh this is surreal for me the people that i've come into contact now like yourself you know, Dr. Pellick, I had like a two hour phone conversation with him the other night and I'm just a cop, you know, (laughs) so it's surreal, but uh, thank you. Just because we have some troubles in government right now doesn't mean there aren't people waiting in the wings who could fill those positions and be very effective, I think. And I think we, we're, not, we're, not a, we're not a ship that's lost at sea. We just need a better captain. You know, um, <laughs> I, I was on the Sean Newman podcast yesterday morning and he said almost that exact same thing. He said, <laughs> we, just, we just have to adjust the course just a bit. Yeah. Right? It's like, we don't have to totally stop it. Yeah. We don't have to turn it completely around. We just have to be able to adjust the course just enough. Absolutely. All right. Well, Danny, thank you so much and and take good care. And I'm sure we'll chat again sometime soon. Yes, you as well. Thank you so much for your time.